Hi everyone, um, it's Raiden. Uh, we recorded this episode on Sunday, April 14th, which was the day before the Boston Marathon and consequently the day before the Boston Marathon bombings. Um, and as you may recall, I live in Boston and it's been my adopted home for almost 10 years now. So I just wanted to say that I'm okay. I'm kind of fucked up in the head, but I'm okay. And that Boston is going to be okay because the unofficial motto is because fuck you, that's why. And we'll stand together in cranky solidarity. Um, and we also wanted to throw up the One Fun Boston donation page which was created by the governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, and the mayor of Boston, Tom Menino, to sort of funnel all the donations to get to where they would do the most good. Um, we'll link the page in the show notes. And if then you could throw in a couple of bucks, that would be great. Um, Boston strong. And now on to the episode. Thank you. Alina, are you fake texting? It's super important. Itwit, blubber, oddman, tweak. Anglo fees. Gettle's gone. Well Mr. done, Russia. Not words you hear often from political commentators. <laughs> oh, I might as well just growl. That'd be about it. I hear an awful lot of judgment in your voice. I am not rising from this bed until I fucked someone. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode seven of Anglo Fees, where we're going to sex up the history, although we don't have to do it because HBO kind of already did it for us. So we're going to talk about that. I'm Raiden. I'm Alina. Research purposes. (laughs) (laughs) It has been Kaylee's mantra for the past month. It's It's gotten me out of many great situations. (sighs) (laughs) It was I was being a proper responsible scholar. I feel I owed it to our, our many listeners that we get to the to the nitty gritty of this history. And listeners in every way possible. Including we, lots of Tumblr. Lots we of we Tumblr. we went all out for you this episode. We did actual work and homework. That's right. Which included me having to Google image for James Purefoy naked and then Photoshop Caesar onto Mark Antony's dick. It Just was- to make the the post for this episode hard work people safe work safe we, we treat you well Anglophies. we we know what you like exactly exactly so what we're talking about specifically is historical dramas in which the sex has been amped up to 11 and the history might have been amped down to about 5 Yes, it kind of depends. And the costuming, we'll get there. Because I have some things to say. (laughs) (laughs) We have an actual specialist in the house. It's true. So, we we had quite the discussion about the order in which we were going to discuss things. Could we discuss things in chronological history, uh, chronological order of the history being portrayed, or air date? chronological order and we decided it would be simpler to talk about air date chronological order ish kind of mm-hmm. we're going more or less in that 
I'm making hand just wild hand gesticulations <laughs> to demonstrate that none of you can see. So whatever. Um. So we're gonna start in well in both Aridate and historical chronological order with ancient Rome, and I feel that the first drama that sort of set the stage for all of this was actually I, Claudius, in what, 76? Mm, yeah, 1976. Um, of which I've I've only seen the first episode, but I will be watching the rest of it because I'm a Roman history nerd and I haven't seen I, Claudius. I'm clearly a fake Roman history nerd, to which <laughs> can add to the list of all the other fake things that I am. <laughs> and I, I mean, that drama has both some very recognizable names. I'm just looking down the list here. Derek, Derek Jacoby, John Hurd, Brian Blessed, Patrick Stewart. Right. And it's Brian Blessed without a beard and Patrick it's, Stewart with hair. It's so unsettling. It it's, genuinely is. I, I did ask on Twitter for the benefit of our audience, which they found creepier. And I believe Brian Blessed with uh, without the beard won. Yeah. <laughs> It's very strange when see, you see actors, you know, hair transforms. Community had uh, Jason Alexander with hair this week, and it was weird and yeah. strange. It's like being in an alternate universe, you know? Like when the sliders go into an alternate universe and the Golden Gate Bridge is like the Blue Gate Bridge, and like you go into alternate universe, Patrick Stewart has hair? This like, is yeah, not where not. my home is. <laughs> <laughs> this is not normal. <laughs> Right. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how explicit I, Claudius, got with the sex. I, I'm given to understand that it was not what people were really expecting on their PBS dramas. <laughs> um, but it was the 70s, and everybody seemed to r- realize that everybody had you know genitalia in the 70s. So, so I, this in the in the U.S. it aired on PBS because this is a BBC television. Mm-hmm. Adaptation. Okay. BBC pioneering the sex. That's right. Thank Real you, Britannia. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, BBC. Home of classy television worldwide. So, yeah, I, Claudius kind of covers the early part of the Roman Empire from the, I want to say, the tailish end of Augustus's reign through Claudius's? I'm not sure, because I haven't watched it. But there you go. There were boobs in the first episode. (laughs) And poisoning, and you kind of go from there. Well, it seems like um, the if there was any controversy about sex in the show at the time, I don't think it stood in its way, because according to the just the trivia about it, it did get awards. So you were right, it was a PBS drama in the States, and it's won BAFTAs, and it has won an Emmy for Art Direction, and producers and directors received nominations. So, yeah, it looks like people didn't clutch their pearls. Mm. It's airing. It was no Caligula, let's put it that way. (laughs) (laughs) And then for my Claudius, we can jump straight into... HBO's Rome, which started in 2005. Part of me is still angry that it got cancelled before its time. Like, why? Wasn't it making the money? It was, it was a, an extremely expensive yeah, TV show to That's make. true, it was. It, was, was uh, it cost millions to make, and they just, I think BBC co-funded it as well, but it just got to the point where 
even though it was critically acclaimed and it had its viewership, it just wasn't worth the money. Mm-hmm. I think I, I have heard um, official comments from HBO going, uh, look, this, we made a huge mistake in canceling it. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think they realized how well the DVDs would sell. And I gotta, I gotta say this for HBO, they make the DVDs absolutely worth buying. Mm-hmm. Um, the oh, Rome yeah. DVDs have commentaries on well over half the episodes from the writers, the directors, actors, costumers, prop people. Um, they do have um, a special feature called All Roads Lead to Rome, where it will pop up facts of, like, you know, this character has just made a curse to Dis, and a pop a fact will pop up going, Dis is a god of chaos, and you curse to him whenever things get fucked up. And stuff like that. Um, so they absolutely made the the DVDs worth the kind of extravagant amount of money I was happy to pay for it, and I didn't have any money. So I believe HBO has recognized that that they probably could have made a decent amount of money off of a third season. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to happen. Which is unfortunate. Because <sighs> they really... The second season really suffers from the oh, we're getting cancelled and we have six episodes left to write? Right, they start... Uh, the pacing issues are insane. Okay. Yeah. They yeah. S- <laughs> wars that were supposed to be the season suddenly just take an episode and happen off screen. Right, and the Irani's pregnancy lasts about three years. Yeah, there's that. Oh, <laughs> Irani, uh, for those who haven't seen, she's a, she's a, a secondary character in the show, but I always found it hilarious that the one Italian actress in the show was playing somebody who wasn't Roman ethnically. <laughs> she was yeah. playing a, a Germanic character. <laughs> yeah. That was hilarious. But let's um, I wanna, let's kind of rewind and talk about where it's set up. Uh, the creators of the show did something interesting. They found uh, the names of two soldiers in Caesar's own writing, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yes, Caesar's own writing. Uh, Caesar's uh, Comentani de Bello Gallico, so for his Gallic Wars. I don't know how to pronounce it in Latin. Close enough. Um, and these, there's no, there was no details. It's just names of two soldiers that were in C- the were in Caesar's army. They're just f- mentioned in the writing, and the creators just kind of, they took that and went with it. They created entire characters around them. It's the names are Lucius Varinus and Titus Polo. The greatest bro- TV bromance since Sean and Corey and Boy Meets World. Varinus being portrayed by Kevin McKidd and Pulo by Ray Stevenson, and I love both of these like since mm-hmm. this show i will watch them anything i think they're brilliant um and so they they so the, the show kind of follows two threads uh pulo and Varinus and and how they intersect with the life of caesar mark anthony and and you know the the high class romans versus the plebeians the low class mm-hmm. romans and how their lives weave in and out of each other uh yeah like i thought it was a really well it was well written mm-hmm uh, it was gripping from the start, and the the pace of the first season was very fast. Like I remember when I when I decided to watch it for the second time, I was surprised at where the first episode ended. I thought, oh, w- didn't that happen in the second episode? Wow, like they really went, like they really go fast through through these uh, historical events. And sometimes you have to remember that years pass in between, you know, just uh, 
three three episodes they could span mm-hmm. quite a few and i guess this is the first example we get of kind of history being compressed yeah because sometimes it looks like months but really the the actual war the actual conflict whatever would have lasted years mm-hmm. yeah and i think kieran hines makes a fantabulous caesar he's got the bellowing gravitas and oh he's it was awesome good. but really Polly Walker and James Purefoy, <laughs> who's pe- two people whose nakedness makes you happy, no matter where you are on the sexual orientation spectrum, and they're naked a lot. A lot. Oh, <laughs> it's yes. true. I think together. I think I was watching the second episode. At one, this was a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was the second episode, and we have a scene of. I think that's the scene where Mark Anthony is fucking the shepherdess, not under the standard. <laughs> and it's it's not clear how much consent she had in the in the transaction. And then you had uh, Varinas fucking his wife, and she wasn't too happy about it. And my roommate was like, does anyone in this show have sex consensually? And immediately we get a smash cut to Atia and Anthony going at it. Yeah. And she's like, oh, okay. Wow. <laughs> yeah. The, the <laughs> Rome really, uh, really didn't skimp on the side. And the thing is, it's not... I don't think it was necessarily always gratuitous. There are shows we'll talk about later that sometimes I feel like the sex either goes on too long. Because any mm-hmm. in a TV show, let's face it, from a, a a point of view of uh, just enjoying the TV show, any scene should contribute to the story of the character in some way. And sometimes in some of the shows that I watch right now that are on HBO or other networks, which can get explicit, I feel like certain sex scenes are there just to go, look at what we can do. Yeah. Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think you're catching the bug. I just had right. <laughs> but And uh, just... In case people are like, well, why aren't you talking about sexy dramas? Why aren't you talking about Game of Thrones? It's not historical. I don't care what you say, Troy Barnes. <laughs> and also, I believe we have a future episode plan around Game of Thrones. So, yes, we, we, yeah, we, give me a chance to actually watch some of it, people. <laughs> <laughs> we, we have narrowed our focus to specifically works based on history as opposed to um, Sex. works of fiction, which is why we probably aren't going to mention um, The Pillars of the Earth or anything based on Philippa Gregory's books because those were based on novels as opposed to the history itself. Well, I know we kind of cheated with I, Claudius, but we didn't spend too much time in it. <laughs> but yeah, so... We'll have to mention a little bit of Philip Gregory just because I have some things I need to Yeah, do. I mean, we'll mention them, but this, this episode does have a narrower focus, which is yeah. why. But yeah, so I do feel like the sex wasn't necessarily that gratuitous. We we It did contribute. It didn't go on too long. It often happened just enough to introduce a character trait if it went on longer there was still um kind of an art direction to it Mm -hmm. that made sense for example uh the the seduction of um daughter the her children was octavius thank you um octavia by um an an older woman actually that was an interesting scene right I mean, the the main problem I had with Rome, and I mean, 
I love the show, but that doesn't mean that it's perfect, is that it's sort of, while the creators were saying, look, we are making the women all involved in history, and the women totally had a had a role to play in all of these major historical events, which was true, the way they made them involved was by Caesar's assassination is set in effect by Servilia being angry that he dumped her. Yeah, pretty much the entire thing. It's the entire thing happens because Servilia is because, jealous and bitter, and because Servilia and Adia are going at it for the role of what exactly? first lady of Rome, so to say, the first right. lady in Rome. Um, so that's kind of awkward. Um, and just to talk about the costuming a little bit, mm-hmm. I mean, first off, the, the set direction is fucking incredible. I mean, yes, this show was incredibly expensive to make because they made all of these three dimensional sets that were perfection. Mm-hmm. Um, the costuming, I do Roman costuming for historical reenactment. So this is kind of my thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And the costuming for the men is all generally pretty good. Um, the tunics that Titus and Polo wear with the the legion blazoned on the front like a t-shirt, not so so much the shape of the tunics, <laughs> right? But <laughs> um, and the clothing of the lower class women is generally pretty good. At least it gets the feel right. Anything Atia wears that's like form fitting and shows off her boobs so much, that's fantasy. Mm-hmm. And it gets more and more ridiculous as the second season goes on. <laughs> However, <laughs> I don't care. Can I ask, Adia's wigs, especially since they go into all of the different colors, was that any kind of historical accuracy? Oh, yeah. Was that pure... yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, it was not uncommon for Roman matrons to buy slaves who had great hair, shave their heads, make wigs out of that hair, and then make the slaves dress them with the wigs of their own hair. Have you watched the YouTube videos of Janet Stevens? Mm-mm. No. Oh, is that just... an amateur archaeologist hairdresser? And she sort of became convinced that they weren't using wigs and it was their real hair. And she actually figured out how they could do that. And she's done YouTube instructional videos on how to get all of the old Roman hairstyles from the sculptures and things. Um, I haven't watched all of them. Um, I mean, I've done that kind of thing on my own hair. And there, there are some styles that, yes, you can do with all of your own hair. It helps if you have a lot of ridiculously thick Italian hair that hangs down past your butt. Um, mine goes almost to my butt. But it's also very thin. <laughs> I have a lot of it, but it's it's really fine, so it compresses down really easily. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are some other styles that you more patrician styles I mean I think obviously you're going around with a ridiculous hairstyle with a wig all Mm -hmm. the time is just exhausting (laughs) I think it was kind of adorable how she's like I'm the first person to have ever done this ever (laughs) aww you're you're the first person to publish honey but (laughs) (laughs) I do think an archaeologist hairdresser might be the greatest title ever (laughs) yeah yeah 
Um, I would like to mention that uh, since this is the first show we're talking about in depth, this is the first example of the things they um, they sacrifice, the kind of historical accuracy they sacrifice in the name of television convenience. And specifically, I'm thinking about the character of Octavia. So Octavia is um, Caesar's great niece of, of some sort, like Adia being... Atia was the daughter of Caesar's younger sister. That's right. So Octavia and Octavia, her daughter. But in reality, there were two Octavias. One of them was Atia's daughter. That was Octavia the younger. Octavia the older was her father, their father's daughter by a first wife, if mm-hmm. I remember my research. The TV show conflates them. There's just one Octavia. Uh, she is the older one, but she is Adia's daughter in that. Um, and I can understand where having two characters with the same name and one of them probably having nothing to do, it just it would get confusing for viewers and you know they would need casting. like it wouldn't make make much sense from a television show point of view. Mm-hmm. So I do think, from that standpoint, you can justify the change. But of course, it's one of those big examples of let's just take two historical figures and smush them together. Yeah. And rewrite history accordingly. Um, there is a, uh, I remember reading this up on the research and there was a particular plot point where Octavia is um, offered to um, Pompey Magnus as a bride and my research said that while the younger one, Caesar's actual blood relative, was offered him as a bride, she was at the time a child, so the older one was betrothed like in her place. With the, with the understanding what you can have sex with this one now, but when the other one grows up, the, that one will be your actual wife? Was that how it worked? <laughs> I I don't know. Um, sorry, I just got distracted by something else. Get um, off Tumblr, Aiden. We're it's we're... not Tumblr. Somebody sent me a contact request on Skype, and I don't know who they am. <laughs> uh, right, what were we talking about? Sorry. <laughs> it's early! <laughs> okay. Uh, we were talking about historical accuracy. Any other insights? So we've talked about costumes and hair, mm-hmm. and we talked about characters. Um, we kind of mentioned the the way the pacing and the way the show would just jump. Yeah. Event to event. Like, there are wars that my understand took years that kind of just look like they took months here. And because the actors, like, they've only changed an actor once for actual, for Octavian, future right. Augustus, from um, <laughs> a younger boy to an older one. So, like, with actors' ages, you couldn't quite tell how much time is supposed to have gone by, right? So, it was kind of... If you don't know anything about Roman Roman history, you probably assume this all takes place in the span of a couple of years. Whereas if you know, you know that this is, what, this is dec- about half, decades? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's kind of amazing. Like, Varinus's younger youngest daughter um, physically ages, you know, two years. Mm-hmm. When, really, she should have been... Yeah, grown woman. Long <laughs> a grown ago. woman. And it... It's funny because her, the actress who played his youngest daughter was Italian and she could not speak English and she really didn't even really want to try. Mm-hmm. And I think it's in the last episode that Polo is talking to... You know how she never talks. Yeah, it's yeah. Like she never talks, but she glowers at us. It's pretty <laughs> scary. <laughs> yeah, they just wrote that right in. 
And um, I, there is something in terms of uh, the show's an actual show and how well the writing is that I did admire. For example, it, very early on in the first episode, now Octavian, uh, the future Emperor Augustus, but he's not the Emperor. Even by the end of the show, he's still not the Emperor, so he's always just known as a, a guy as Octavian. Mm-hmm. Um, his character, especially in the early ones, seems very sympathetic. He's a young boy, um, and he seems like everybody treats him like he might be shy and and a little weak but actually he he's got a very sharp mind and you could see where he will become the the person who becomes the mm-hmm. emperor and this very early scene uh in which we see him he's uh he wants to talk to his mother to, to Adia and Adia is very brash and treats him like he's a little boy but as they're talking their slaves cleaning up around them and one of them accidentally touches him with a, a hot brazier i think and he just casually without skipping a beat slaps the shit out of her and then goes right back talking to his mother mm-hmm. and I thought it was great in how it demonstrated the social attitudes to where even a person that might have been that from our point of view would consider very decent and reserved and shy they would treat slaves right with complete I mean, in, that, in that same episode Adia says oh I got this awesome horse for your uncle Gaius and you're going to take it to him alone. And he's like, alone? Seriously? To Gaul? And she's like, you're going to have slaves, but really, you're alone. <laughs> yeah, all the slaves to protect you. Yeah. And they don't even do that good a job. And I think the like the, the main establishing character moment for him in that episode is Titus and Varinus, or mm-hmm. Pullo and Varinus, have rescued him from the Gauls that captured yeah, let's, him. Yeah, let us be mentioned that his fears came true. He did get captured by the Gauls. <laughs> right. And um, Titus, or Pullo and Varinus kill all of them, and he convinces them that he's, you know, he's not a slave. He's a high boy, high-born Roman boy who's nephew to Caesar. And... He picks up a stick, beats the shit out of the last remaining alive Gaul that captured him. I mean, like, I mean, even Polo's like, damn boy, (laughs) dude. And then he turns around and he's like, what are you doing here? Oh, you're here to capture the standard. Let me tell you exactly what's going on here. Yeah, like, and then, like, Robert's historical just... analysis all over them. Yeah, he, he, anal- he, like, does a full political analysis of the situation he just learned about. Yeah. And they're like, whoa. That boy's gonna be emperor someday. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have them yet, but he'll start it. Yeah. And then throughout the series, he gets more and more dark and twisty. Mm-hmm. Until he's perfectly willing to start the um, the confiscations to fill the treasury again, like put people on a list of we're going to say that you're traitors, even though your only crime was you have a shitload of money. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the slaves, because I said that this was the show really about the patricians and the plebs, but the mm-hmm. slave characters are also very interesting. For example, Caesar... Um, has Posca. Like, every patrician character on the show has one slave who is very, who's really their personal um, attendant, Mm -hmm. who's with them for years, probably their entire life. Mm -hmm. I don't know, so again, question, 
it feels like it could be legitimate history that they did yeah. have some that were and I'm guessing Posca was probably an actual historical name of Caesar yes. of a slave Caesar, freed and Caesar's will. Yeah. Um who who and I don't know if you can call it Stockholm syndrome or just functioning within the confines of their social structure where those slaves will grieve when their masters are killed. Probably nobody grieved for Adia. But even with her slaves, I remember when um, her, the one she had personally, and who knew she was an evil, he called her an evil-minded uh, woman. Mm-hmm. But he'd he'd brought another slave boy into this household because he wanted to have sex with him yeah. on screen. But the boy turned out to be an assassin, sent there mm-hmm. specifically for that person. And when everything is found out, the slave offers kind of his life up saying he failed her because he brought the assassin into the house. And she's all like... Uh, don't be silly. Next time you want a boy, go buy one. Like right. I don't mind if like you're kind of my one of my higher up slaves. You could go buy yourself a boy. I'm not mm-hmm. that evil. <laughs> I'll give you money for that. And um, Caesar has Posca. He he makes this uh, comment in one of the earlier episodes where he says like Posca thinks I couldn't tie my sandals without him, because <laughs> he's a bit of a mother hen. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yes, you see, uh, Cicero himself is a bigger character, but Cicero's slave isn't. But even then, you see him willing to die to protect his master, and Cicero being all kind of going, like, no, 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 there's no reason for you to die, and when I'm being murdered here, you go take care of yourself. So there was an interesting dynamic of the slaves who were the, the personal household and, and uh, personal attendants. Servilia's slave mourning her mistress and then ki- uh, killing herself. Killing herself, yeah. yeah. Often you see that those slaves being the only people allowed in with the patrician in the moment of their very personal grief when they won't even see family. They'll just kind of go to the one person who's always there, but I guess to them isn't really a person. Um, yes and no. I mean, kind of one of the the main differences between ancient slavery and, say, American slavery mm-hmm. is that in Greece and in Rome, it was possible to eventually earn your freedom. That's right. Um, and even even if you earned your freedom and your your master freed you, you were still kind of you were still bound to them. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pasca stays with Caesar's family, not just out of a sense of loyalty, which I think he, he actually had. Um, I mean, he had more loyalty to Octavian than to, say, Adia. Mm-hmm. Um, and Although he ended up with Mark Anthony in the end, in terms of... He did, but yeah. he wasn't real happy about it. No, he wasn't. <laughs> but he, wa- he was freed in Caesar's will, which is why I'm saying I think this was an actual historical character, because I think they actually yeah. took the name out of the will. Yeah. Um. So you were still bound to your master's family, mm-hmm. and there was still kind of a, a sense of obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, now as a freedman, a freed woman. Uh, yeah, a freedman or a freed woman. Um, so even after Polo frees Irene, mm-hmm. um, even after he kills her boyfriend, <laughs> killed her boyfriend, um, she still is staying with. Varinus's family because that's that's what it's expected that's what you do. Also I think although in the Rainey's case because where else would she go? Mm-hmm. She was kidnapped as a child from the Germanic tribes. 
right? So it's not... I believe Irene was a character not a lot of people liked. I remember comments on internet discussions saying that she was a little too passive. The first episode in which we see her, she's uh, walking along the road, presumably having been sent on some errand by whoever owned her at the time. And uh, some defecting soldiers kind of see her and go, oh, girl, and snatch her up. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, actually seeing comments where people going like, she was so passive, didn't fight. Really? This is what you supposed to do. Fight armed men. Like, it's bad enough. Like, what? Do you think it's preferable to get killed right there? Maybe she really wants to live. Maybe she wants a chance. Like, what was she supposed to do? (laughs) There's a band of armed guys. I'd like to see you fight that. Yeah. I mean, I I thought that the dynamic between her and Polo was interesting. Mm -hmm. Um,. Certainly, the romantic relationships in this are not ones that... They're not healthy. (laughs) Yeah, they don't answer to our modern sensibilities. You know what I mean? Like, with Irene and Polo ended up together in in real romantic love after he kills a boy she was in love with, specifically out of jealousy, not really something we could understand. We could watch it on TV, right? But we probably wouldn't understand it historically. It, It is the same with a lot of the other... Of course, we only get to see a glimpse of Livia and Octavian. Oh, but that glimpse is oh, very... It's very telling and also, I think, very um, representative of the relationship as a lot of people see it. Mm-hmm. Livia could have been so awesome if they got a third season. I, I forever mourn the fact that we don't get to see the, the epic Livia Atia showdown. Mm-hmm. There was a great With speech. Escalating body count. <laughs> a great speech. Because most of the show is, uh, as we've mentioned, you know, like all of these historical events happen, but the undercurrent is that the women are in the background. So a lot of the show is Adia struggling with Servilia for power in society. And in the end, in the very last episode, when you see that Servilia is gone by then, when you see that the struggle has shifted to Adia versus her son Octavian's wife, Livia. They actually have a speech where um, Adia slights Livia in some way, and she she smiles and says, "Like I can see you looking at me. Promise me that one day you'll take your revenge, and I'll regret it. Better women than you have tried. Go look for them now." Which is the best line. Yeah, <laughs> and the way the show wraps up because that's one of the last scenes. It really does position Adia as the star of the show, and really the story is almost her story in some way. And I would say that I agree. I think despite the, uh, you know, the fact that Mark Antony and Caesar, they were big characters. When you, you know, Ty- Pulo and Varinus were the stars, especially of their storylines. But I would mm-hmm. say probably Adia was the protagonist and driving force of the patrician storylines. Yeah, I agree. And all the actors were British. <laughs> I think TV Tropes even has uh, like a trope dedicated to that. You know, everybody's British in Rome. Mm-hmm. I think they did. They even uh, Kaylee chime in. You have seen the show, right, Kaylee? Yes. Yeah. So correct me. You would you know the accents better than I. But it, to me, it felt like they they chose like a specific accent. I guess more posh sounding one to represent the patricians, and then um, lower class sounding accents to represent the plebs. Was that accurate? That's pretty accurate. But that's pretty accurate for a lot of historical dramas where everyone happens to be particularly English, just to point out. It's not usually as British, it's usually English. Um, and then they'll occasionally throw in words. If it's in France, they'll occasionally say bonjour, but they'll all speak with an English accent mm-hmm. kind of thing. 
Which is one of the things I love about historical oh. dramas. It makes me laugh every single time. Karen Hines yeah. not English. Karen Hines so Irish. <laughs> it's true. And it's if you listen well, to Kevin when, is Scottish and Exactly. Yeah. When when you listen to Verena's like when he gets really worked up, some of the growl comes in. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> that that that's instinctive accent work right there. Yeah. Angry Scottish, yeah. Yeah. Angry Scottish, yeah. So that was Rome. That was Rome. And then just after Rome wrapped up, we moved into Showtime was like, wait, wait a second. <laughs> we can do a TV show that's really pretty with pretty people. And they can have sex, and it's history sold. And they started the tutors. Now the t- the tutors being um, really about. I wonder why they called it the tutors. I don't know if they plan to to be able to continue it after the death of Henry the Eighth. Maybe it was kind of a just in case, because it is about Henry the Eighth. It doesn't go on to his children. But it, you know, it lasted longer than Rome. It lasted, I think, five seasons? Four. Four seasons to Rome's two. Uh, and Jonathan Rhys Myers is Henry. And I've had a, a tiny crush on him ever since I saw him in Gormenghast. <laughs> um, He's that... really pretty and incredibly unsettling, which I think works for Henry VIII. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so that starts, it doesn't start with, it starts early on, well, not even early in his reign, because by the time it starts, some marital discord has already set in between him and his first wife, Catherine of, Catherine of Aragon. Yep. So it's kind of, you know, when it says the Tudors, in some way, it, it you could say the Tudor women, the kind of the wives, it's almost like the wives of Henry VIII. Yeah. But it does start when uh, his relationship with the first wife is on the decline. Mm-hmm. Um, and and he's known for you know fucking all the women of the court. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it was not they didn't make that up that he was mm-hmm. um, screwing around with her ladies in waiting. Now, historical accuracy and also time and now is just as precarious as it was in Rome. For example, Henry VIII had two sisters, Mary and Margaret. Um, they were conflated into one character in the show. They called her Margaret because they didn't want confusion with Henry's daughter, Mary. Mm-hmm. But they gave her Mary's life except somewhat altered. For example, the real uh, Mary was married to the elderly king of France, widowed, and then came back and remarried. But the Margaret in the show was married to the elderly king of Portugal. Yeah. I think, again, because the king of France, was they, they wanted to introduce the, the younger one already as a foil to Henry, and they didn't want to go through the part of his father dying or anything. So there was no historical accuracy to be seen anywhere within the vicinity of that character. <laughs> right. Yes, she did marry Charles Brandon. Yes, that, that's about the <laughs> And died awkwardly. <laughs> um, the costumes I, I... are so pretty. The costumes are pretty... Okay. 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 Um, the, the costumes in the... Especially the first season and a lot of the costumes in the second season really kind of... For the women, um, 
really are kind of like, oh, so not what do you mean you don't have a chemise under that? You need a chemise under that. And and, and the and only hair is... Why do you look like you're wearing a couch? You kind of <laughs> are. Oh, God. I'll find a picture of this particular dress. It's pretty awful. The... Um, and her shag haircut. I don't know. There's something all of these shows do in that they they want to conform to modern standards of beauty so all of the women their heads are uncovered when in reality they all would have worn like the french hood right like none of them would be walking around with their hair loose and flowing around their shoulders that's something we do now yeah it was shameful for a woman to be bare hair bareheaded and loose haired Yes. At the time, they never would have. No, all of these princesses, like, watch the portraits of Anne Boleyn. Those, you know, the the white scarf kind of and the the cap over it. That wasn't because she was sitting for the portrait. That's what they were. I'm sorry, there was no pretty hair for you, <laughs> viewers. Yeah, and I think the costumes do improve as the series goes on. And I've had a number of people who do Tudor and Elizabethan costuming like go into to like palpitations of Ugh! how could you possibly nominate the costumes for an Emmy they're so bad and I'm like okay first off the show is clearly it's set in an alternate universe <laughs> yes. clearly with a lot of the same names and some of the same events happen vaguely kind of so the costumes are a little bit different also it's TV it's not Oh my God, calm down. And they're like, Oh my God, you don't understand because this is not your, your time period. This is not the time period you care about. And I'm like, yeah, but I had that show. It was called Rome. It had the same problems and I don't give a shit. (laughs) So calm the fuck down. (laughs) I think a lot of people, for many people, when they think of quote unquote sexed up historical drama, the very epitome of that, I think, is this version of the Tudors. This mm-hmm. is what a lot of people feared Rome would end up being like. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is a show, there is not an ugly person on this show. This is a show where Joss Stone is Anne of Cleves. Yeah, and let's face it. Very, very pretty Anne of Cleves. gorgeous. And I was supposed to believe you wouldn't want to consummate marriage with her. Yeah. Oh my God. That was weird. And then this is a show where, of course, John Van Rees Myers remains pretty fit throughout. Yeah, they, of course... Henry got morbidly obese, and they didn't want to do that, so instead, like, I think they emphasized the leg wound. Yeah, um, I read a thing where they de- they they deliberately made the choice not to, like, go in with a fat suit, because then people would be focusing on that instead of on the performance. Also, I don't think Jonathan Reese Myers really wanted to fat himself up. Mm. Um so they were trying to go for the leg wound and like the increasing infirmity yeah and i i think there's a a theory that he had syphilis that was kind of mm-hmm. chewing at his mind towards the end <laughs> nothing would surprise me yeah i think there is sort of a fictional habit of really sexing up Henry VIII to the max. I don't know. But historically, was he considered quite handsome? He was. In all the versions of the things I've watched, he is fat. The historically... Like, early all... in his reign, like especially before he got that leg wound, mm-hmm. um, he was considered a pretty hot catch. Yeah, all the... All the pretty the... sort of like Henry VIII-centered things I've watched, he's pretty fit in all three of them, so... Mm-hmm. it's. An, I guess the, the <laughs> thing about uh, Henry is that the TV versions I've seen, because uh, aside from the Tudors, there were other British miniseries. Um, they all start, they, they like to start kind of with the, sedu- uh, the seduction of Anne Boleyn. 
they all kind of feel that the interesting history happens with Anne Boleyn and everybody, which always makes me feel so sad for Catherine of Aragon. Like why that? Because that was a pretty romantic story in its start too. She was, um, so she was married to Henry's brother, older brother who passed away. They were betrothed as children and she was shipped off to England by her father who couldn't care less. And then kind of abandoned. And the British court, the English court didn't give her money to really sustain herself. And she was really living in extreme poverty within the English court. And finally, Henry was like, no, screw you, dad. She's beautiful and I will marry her. And then they had and he rescued her from poverty (laughs) by marrying her. And all she had to do was give him a son for that to end up happily. But of course... She didn't. She didn't. She did, technically. He lived only a couple of days. Yeah. But the Tudors as the show, oh, it made me, I kind of felt that if they were rewriting history, couldn't they rewrite it to where Catherine and Henry end up together? Because Maria Doyle Kennedy did such a great job. She, She did. And I feel like that's the version of history that Philippa Gregory would have really have loved to happen. <laughs> now, of course, the other Boleyn girl, the book happened a couple of years before the show, and maybe it had something to do with the with the commercial interest in the era. Mm-hmm. There was a really big sort of Tudor craze, for lack of a better word, that came around that time that book was written, certainly in Britain anyway. Mm-hmm. Um and she she's sort of she's cornered the market in historical dramas and literature mainly in UK anyway. Right. I believe she's got a new TV show that's coming out in Stars or Showtime. Is it the Red Queen. Yes, yes, and that's on the the uh, the War of the Roses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I've read a number of her books. I've read the other Boleyn Girl. I've read The Queen's Fool, which is about the reign of Mary the First. I've read the the Virgin, the Virgin Queen, the Virgin something, the one that's about Elizabeth and, um, oh God, what's his name? The guy she was the Virgin's lover. Fucking. The Virgin's lover. Um, the guy oh. she was allegedly fucking. <laughs> the guy who Robert Dudley. Yeah. No, no, it's that's the yes. Yes, Robert. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't she then connected to his son actually there there are tv shows and movies about that too yeah for for a virgin queen she gets a lot of fiction about her sex life yeah (laughs) um one track nine history yeah (laughs) and philippa gregory has a serious hate on for Elizabeth and Anne Boleyn, because neither of them come off well in her books. She hates Anne Boleyn so much. She is, you know, Anne Boleyn is a scheming whore, essentially, in yeah. all of Philip. Who was absolutely guilty of everything that Henry accused her of and what she was beheaded for. She fucked Lying, incest, everything. Yep. She did it all. Yep. And Elizabeth... Which- isn't it the stupidest thing? If she's smart enough to scheme her way into queenship, you'd think she would have been smart enough not to sleep with her brother. Or anybody <laughs> else, for that matter. You know? Smart enough right. not to get caught. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, I also read The Boleyn Inheritance, which is about Anne of Cleves and Catherine Howard. Catherine Howard comes off pretty sympathetically because that poor child was just over her head. 
Yeah, she's the Tudors uh, handled Catherine Howard uh, being the fifth wife, I believe, right? Yeah, the, yep. the one before the last. Um, f- a quick history lesson. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> listeners. She was, now that, but at that point, Henry was already, what, well into his 40s? Yeah. Um, she was a child, maybe like 15, I want to say, somewhere in her teen years, mm-hmm. uh, basically chosen for him by the Howard political um a group. The Howards were a powerful family, so they kind of they were the ones behind Anne Boleyn because she was a Howard niece. Um, and then they fell out of favor, so they're like, okay, we need him to marry one of our girls again. Who do we have? We have this very young teenager. She's pretty. He'll love her. They pushed her into his way and into his bed. But the Tudors make her this. They they make her sexually promiscuous and adventurous. And I kind of feel like the historical Henry, he would never have gone for a girl who, before they were married, you know, throws her, her... He would never have married her had she thrown herself into his bed before they were married. He would have gladly had sex with her, but I feel very confident in saying that the very pious Henry... Now, pious not in that he didn't commit adultery. He committed adultery all around. Right. But he liked kind of... But he really was a true believer, religiously. So he never... like What he expected from his mister, mistresses and from himself is very different from what he expected of his wives. Mm-hmm. So what the Tudors made her out to be, I think, was really strangely and not at all connected to historical character accuracy. Not even speaking of accuracy of, of actions and events, but really of character. Because you can keep a character historically accurate even when you have to to change events around them. Yeah. Um, and... And... W- the Alan Leach character in the Tudors that was attached to Catherine Howard, right? Yes, that's yeah. her lover. So poor, poor Alan Leach. <laughs> he he was in Rome too, and his romantic story did not end well. Not as unhappily as it did in the Tudors, in which it ended with his head on a pike. <laughs> <laughs> Which is amazing, because Rome was a lot bloodier. Rome was a lot bloodier, but he still didn't. It didn't end happily for him. No. And then we get him into Downton Abbey, where he's, you know, madly in love. Where he's the chauffeur, madly in love with the youngest daughter of the house. And I'm like, oh, Alan Leach, you never, <laughs> you never get to come out well, and <laughs> it still doesn't. Even though, oh. Okay, he's in all these shows. At least he gets to come. (laughs) That's what she said. Dana signal. (laughs) Right. Okay, back to the Tudors. Don't you feel that the historical accuracy really disintegrated by the end? Like, we got into some. I think that was basically. Oh, we're getting cancelled. Fuck it. Let's just go for it. Yeah, let's just. Charles Brandon gets some strange French romance. Um, your future Superman people. <laughs> it's true. It's Henry true. Cavill. Yeah. Um, they do try to show some sort of hint of what ha- would happen with uh, his children. For example, they 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 start pushing this Elizabeth, who really isn't a character because she's too young for most of the show, is so much like Anne Boleyn, and then she's the only one of his women when he's dying to really show no emotion over it. Mm-hmm. Mary. Now, Mary, I feel his daughter I... Mary is an interesting character. Mm-hmm. They have time to develop a relationship between them and her feelings about her mother and her father. Right. I think 
I, I would have been really interested to see what Sarah Bulger's Mary the First would have been like. Mm-hmm. That I think could have been really fascinating, but with the way that they compressed all of the, the his sisters into one vague character and everything, like trying to come up with a continuity that made sense and was still vaguely close to the historical record. I think would have been really difficult. I'd like to point out at this point of what happens when they have children in these shows. Now, as we mentioned, they play fast and loose with um, the timing of historical events. But when you have little children, their age would demonstrate very clearly because a lot of the time they're happy for the dialogue to maybe hint that it's been years and maybe a decade, but they don't necessarily want viewers to really feel that. Mm-hmm. But when you have a little child, either they are a five-year-old or a teenager. For example, with uh, Henry had a son, Henry Fitzroy, by his mistress, Bessie Blunt. A son he actually started, because he didn't have a legitimate one at that point, started rec- uh, conferring titles onto. And that son was alive throughout Anne Boleyn's reign as queen. And the historical biographies I've read said that she made every effort to include him because I guess she realized that uh, the way to win Henry's favor at that point was to be very ni- to make nice with his son. Mm-hmm. So he was, and he didn't die. He did die in the end, but he didn't die until he was something like seventeen years old. Whereas in the show, he dies as a five-year-old. Yeah. So because they pro- didn't want to show that Anne Boleyn was, you know, queen for that their entire courtship happened over the span of something like nine years, seven, yeah. something like that. Yeah. So that's what happens with these shows. You know, you have to if you know history. I imagine it's. Yeah, and I mean, I think, at least for me, the shows, these shows have all have made me want to learn more about like. That's true. If you if you if you're the curious about the you know if you're not curious, that's fine. You just watch the show and enjoy it. But if you are, this leads to biographies and Wikipedia articles, and then you just learn the real history and probably enjoy it. Exactly. One thing we should mention before we move on is that the Tudors is the first of these shows who that use music by Trevor Morris. Go Canada! <laughs> uh, he's a composer, he's a Canadian, and he's a composer who does the music for a lot of these. And movies as well. It's, it certainly starts to feel like if you're doing a historical production and you need some pretty music, you should go with Trevor Morris. Mm-hmm. And the Tudors uh, did have uh, really beautiful theme music. And I, I have the album from season two, and I listen to it a lot. I really love it. Yeah. The the other thing that the Tudors did is it brought in the the uh, it really brought in the the Reformation in England in some pretty pretty intense depth. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean the in in American schools at least the the explanation of the English Reformation is well Henry wanted to divorced Catherine of Aragon and the Pope wouldn't give it to him so the only way he could get it is by telling the Pope to fuck off so that's what he did and it was all very simple mm-hmm. and it was a lot more complicated obviously it was a lot more complicated and a series of books that kind of talks about that is Hilary Martel's Wolf Hall and Bringing Up the Bodies and there's a third one and um, they talk about the rise and fall of Thomas Cromwell mm-hmm. and the Reformation. Who's a very interesting character in the Tudors. Like, they do... Um, Thomas More also is uh, fantastically acted and written 
Well, he's Jeremy Northam, of course he is. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, quite a few of the political storylines, Woolsey, like, all of these are done really well. It's not just about Henry courting his wife. It's not just wife. about the sex. Absolutely <laughs> not. So, yeah, the, the Reformation, you know, and the frustration that somebody like Thomas Cromwell, who was a true reformer, whereas Henry really was a Roman Catholic at heart, he just wanted to run his own church. So he undid the entire Reformation. <laughs> Except for the one part that allowed him to marry and divorce his, and sack monasteries for the mm-hmm. for the gold. <laughs> Which is really what he wanted, people. It wasn't about the wife. It was about the gold. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty much exactly what happened in Sweden at the same time. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason that the, the canons at uh, the palace at Uppsala are aimed at Uppsala Cathedral. Mm. Awkward. <laughs> Right. So the Tudors wrap up, not with Henry's death, but kind of with his impending death. Mm-hmm. It's almost metaphorical, like he's facing an actual death, you know, skeleton on a horse. They do a weird scene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the Tudors end, and then a year or two later, year. Um, a year later, Showtime gives us the Borgias. <laughs> Trevor Morris <laughs> once again does the music. And when Kaylee, have you seen any of the Borgias? I haven't seen any of the Borgias. Oh, do. It's fantastic. Do. <laughs> Jeremy Irons is Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI. And he chews the scenery with such glee. He's having fun, but of course, because Jeremy Irons is a fucking professional, he doesn't let the fact that he's enjoying the hell out of himself like get in the way of his performance. <laughs> There's a very funny uh, blooper reel. Well, all the blooper reels from this. All the blooper but... reels are funny. Jeremy Irons has a yeah. potty mouth. <laughs> so Jeremy Irons swears every time he flubs a line and forgets a line. But right. Rodrigo Borgia had a ton of kids, and some of them are still little. So he has a lot of scenes with little children. So he would have to watch himself, but you can tell that he really can. He's like really trying to drop a cluster F-bomb, and he's really trying not to because he's with an 11-year-old, and the 11-year-old's like, Really? Really? <laughs> Go ahead. The uh, um, the the is a, is a by the way at the time of the recording of the episode season three is about to start uh, tonight. It will of course have already been by the time we we air. Uh, it has some Canadian connections, so it's always nice for me. Uh, Francois Arnaud plays Cesare Borgia. He's a Canadian French Canadian actor, and uh, Cardinal Della Rovere is played by Colm Fiore recognizable to other Canadians, I'm sure. <laughs> but didn't as we mentioned... He, Jeremy, didn't he play President Adar in um, Battlestar Galactica? Confiore? Yeah. Um, I don't... Yes. Yes, he did. Yep. See? I'm not Canadian and I recognized him. He's shown up in uh, American television. He had a cameo in the West Wing. And he shows up in, in American movies. Um, so, so the Borges is... We kind of shift, I guess. This is the first of these we're discussing where it's about politics, but um, it's not about a royal family. Well, it's kind of a royal family. It's weird, right? Yeah. Uh, so we're now into politics of religion. Um, and, okay, here's a weird one that touched me. So uh, we've been discussing historical inaccuracies they do all throughout. And we've been talking about, you know, how the costumes irked Raiden. And I don't know why this one irked me because I have nothing, no personal connection or mm-hmm. history and I'm not any kind of historical reenactor. But for some reason, 
they referred to um, now Rodrigo Borgia had several children not all of them were from the same movement but kind of the core group of them that's known to history are from Venazzo Cadeneo for some reason the show refers to Venazzo as a Spaniard even though she was Italian now Rodrigo Borgia was a Spaniard and there was controversy about a non-Italian being uh, Pope and you know his children were considered Spanish because of him and they spoke Catalan I believe Mm -hmm. but why the show suddenly changed her to a Spaniard I don't know and I don't know why it bothers me because it's such a tiny thing and yet it (laughs) it actually really did yeah I've been told by people who actually know Italian Renaissance costuming that the costuming in the Borgias is also not great but it's so pretty Mm -hmm. and I don't care Lucrezia can we talk about Lucrezia Lucrezia Borgia being that name that a lot of people know and immediately goes to oh she's had sex with her father and brother and she poisoned people and I don't know why it personally offends me, but it does, because I feel 500 years ago, a disgruntled ex-husband slandered her, and for some reason, we still believe it. Why? She was awesome. She survived Rome and then went on to be a really great duchess. <laughs> but she's played by Holiday Granger. Uh, and the show... Okay, so the question about whether or not she slept with her uh, father and brother. Now, the show does not has taken the show's creator have taken the position that the incest was a slander not a historical accuracy thank goodness but they do show Cesare and Lucrezia as being extremely close and the show's creator I saw an interview with him where he specifically went on to say that he wanted to write them as soulmates who never crossed that line but who always know that with each other they're better suited than with any other lover or spouse they'll ever have so they do have lots of other lovers and spouses on the show, but their moments, the scenes together are always very charged and poignant mm-hmm. and sexy. Cesare is very pretty. <laughs> Francois Arnaud is a beautiful human being. Research purposes. Research. Oh, there's, um, <laughs> there's also a very interesting character called Michelotto, and I mm-hmm. think he is based at least a little bit on some historical figures. He's kind of um, a pal attendant of Cesare's. In the show, he's an assassin who kind of falls in with Cesare and then follows him around and kills people Cesare needs to kill. He he usually lurks in the backgrounds of scenes and leans on things very ominously. (laughs) (laughs) Really, you could make an entire tumbler of Michelotto leaning on things. (laughs) He's a very fun character. A lot of these are... um, very fun. But unlike the other sh- well, no, a little bit like the other shows, but more in this one, it's all really about um, Rodrigo and his children. So this relationship mm-hmm. with your parents your and what they want of you is drives a lot of the conflict. Uh, yeah. In the case of Cesare, it's um, wanting to be a soldier, whereas your father is going like, nope, you're the one who has to succeed me to the church. And Cesare knows he's an awful cardinal. He doesn't want to be. Even though they have sex and like play politics, but that's not the kind of devious life he wants. He wants a soldier's devious life. <laughs> yeah. And the Lucrez and... starts so innocent and then gets married off and everything goes, oh my god, that marriage. Yeah. Poor Lucrez. Yeah. Um, I do... I really liked the scene right after Lucrezia's had her baby in the second season. Mm-hmm. 
and then suddenly it becomes take your grandson to work day <laughs> at the Vatican. And so you have Rodrigo bouncing a cranky baby while receiving an ambassador from the French court. I think so, yeah. And a whole bunch of cardinals. And the ambassador is trying to explain things to him. And he's like bouncing the fussing baby and making proclamations. And then the ambassador would talk and he'd be like, Pianissimo, shut up. You're going to upset the baby. (laughs) Yeah, that was strange. The baby uh, for uh, history nerds being the show's version of the Infantis Romanus, the child of Rome, who is historically thought to be, could be Cesare's, could be Rodrigo's. Uh, he was apparently acknowledged or legitimized by a papal bull, if I'm remembering um, the one book I read about the Borgia family correctly, um, because it's thought that, or at least the author I've read, uh, thought it more likely that Lucrezia's died at birth. Mm-hmm. So probably the infant, who's kind of around the same time, not exactly, was probably, yeah, so probably either Rodriguez or uh, Cesare's. I think that child dies in the end too, so he doesn't become very uh, very significant to the history. But within the show, they decide to make him Lucrezia's. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and the family's like, oh, look, there's a new baby. It's very interesting. Now, according to historical accounts I've read, Rodrigo did like having his children around him, so they were kind of present in the court, mm-hmm. in the Vatican court. So it's really interesting. You have this pope, and his kids are just running around. Because apparently it just really made him happy to have his kids around him. Right. And my my roommate, who who I've said before is like constantly amused at the like the research I do for this show. <laughs> it's like I still don't get how the Pope and having children and how that works. And I'm like mm-hmm. At the time, there were like three popes. Remember when they they had the schism, and then no. <laughs> it was the French one. And look, having kids was the least of their problems. <laughs> Actually, I think, like, I mean, let's face it. Most of the other cardinals, the, their problem with uh, with Borgia wasn't that he had kids. They all had kids. It was the fact that he wasn't Italian, right? Or even French, right? The and I think just the kinda... fact that he was flaunting his kids around mm-hmm. bothered them a little bit. It might have been the flaunting. There's a yeah. whole Wikipedia entry on popes known to be sexually active. <laughs> Which at that time was pretty much all of them, that time in history. And There's I mean, a really, really awful joke I could make about that Wikipedia page, but I won't. Please do. No, please do. That. So- <laughs> Come on. Um, the. There are some historical facts uh, that they do get right. For example, I believe it is a fact that Lucrezia ran Rome in his absence. Like he did let her ha- wield actual power. Can a woman sit on the chair of St. Peter? Well, clearly she is. Yes. So, see ya. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, there's Holiday Granger who plays Lucrezia, I think. She she gets the role right. Like they, they, they found this girl who's so delicate in her looks. But as the show, and she is very innocent, and I believe from historical accounts, they did say that she was kind of the apple of her father's eye, and the family kind of doted on her. And now they they made her first marriage more brutal in the show than I ever believe it was historically, because historically they didn't leave Rome. 
because Borgia wanted her married for political purposes, he didn't necessarily want his kids leaving. So she and her husband actually lived there. So she wouldn't have been, so her husband wouldn't have been able to abuse her really under, you know, his father's-in-law's watchful eye. Uh, whereas the show decided that her first marriage, she would travel away to her husband's uh, estate and that the husband would be abusive. But it was weird. The show decided he would be angry because he, he knew she was a bastard child and he was angry that his family forced him to marry this uh, powerfully connected bastard. Historically, the husband himself was a bastard child. Mm-hmm. So the show just kind of went off in its own direction, as it usually does. So I don't know why I'm complaining. <laughs> <laughs> but afterwards, Lucre- is they did, the reason they did that is they wanted that to be the catalyst for Lucrezia to really become a political, political schemer. Mm-hmm. And even a personal schemer, because as every child has some sort of conflict with Rodrigo, they all have conflicts among each other. Now, we've been talking only about Lucrezia and Cesare, but Juan Borgia, the historical accounts never seem to agree who's older, Juan or Cesare, but the two mm-hmm. oldest sons, not counting the ones not from Renata, because I think there was another Rodrigo, um, Juan and Cesare. So there's there's a conflict between them because Juan gets to be a soldier, which Cesare wants, and they're always like trying to one-up each other. Yeah, and one's bad at it. Yeah, and one is so bad. But David Oakes plays him so well. Mm-hmm. And then, so then Lucrezia and Juan get into this scuffle, and she almost assassinates him, but kills a girl he's sleeping with instead. It's very bloody. Right. It totally would have worked if he hadn't rolled over. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> uh, in a convoluted, like, kind of burn the rope that's holding the chandelier, but it went crazy there. Yeah. Good thing little Joffrey like got removed as far as possible from that. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so and then they're all trying to play nice for their mother, but of course they yeah, it's it's a strange family. <laughs> they don't love each other quite as much as history thought they did. No. But I'm enjoying the show. Um it's very well I think it's well done. I think and again, the there is a quality of acting to all of these. Yeah, they always get really, really good casts. Mm-hmm. They do. They really do. There's a quality. So what they lack in historical accuracy, you know, they really make up in the quality that goes into the writing and the acting and the set and the costume design. I mean, they might not be accurate, but, you know, they don't skimp on them. Right. So I think which is which really contributes to the lasting uh, popularity of the shows. Yeah. I mean, okay, I do... I don't want to say I complain, but I acknowledge the the lack of accuracy in the Roman costumes. But mm-hmm. the the fact is, is that upper class female clothes are not modernly sexy. Mm-hmm. There isn't cleavage involved. You're pretty much draped in all sorts of heavy fabric. This reminds me of a particular line that kind of tried to nod to the fact that standards of beauty were different in Rome, and yet the standards of casting were modern. Mm-hmm. Uh, this goes back to Rome, where Pullo and Varinus are talking about Varinus's wife. Now, as we all know from paintings, not that not that bit, Ray, it'll get your mind out of the gutter. As we all know from a lot of the paintings, uh, standards of beauty tended, uh, even up to the Middle Ages, tended towards plumpness. You know, because being somewhat overweight showed that you had money. 
to eat, to have food, to have proper nutrition. And, you know, the, that's why all of the Venuses in the Renaissance frescoes are, are they don't look like the models on our Vogue covers. So there's a line when uh, Polo and Arenas are talking about how Arenas is so nervous to see his wife after years away at wars, and Polo's teasing him and going like, what if she lost her teeth? What if she's gotten skinny? His wife is skinny. The actress is skinny. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And there's no mention because we're supposed to just think, okay, well, she's beautiful to us. Therefore, just imagine her with like 15 more pounds. That would have been yeah. <laughs> beautiful. So yeah, they do they they do that. They do the right. modern standards of beauty, and yet the dialogue tries to pretend that otherwise. Right. Of course, the the line that I'm cackling about is Marinus is <laughs> is being sad. He's like, I don't know how to make her actually like happy. And Polo's like, oh, have I got relationship advice for you, buddy? Mostly sex advice. Mostly sex advice, because... But before that, uh, Polo does this hilarious bit where what, you did, we weren't doing that on purpose. And right? <laughs> she like, hates me! It's like, I thought you were doing that on purpose. Why would I do that? I don't like, clever know. one, you! <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you're the smart one. Oh, yes, they, they are really the best. I don't know. In terms of bromance, it really is Rome's Venus and Pulo, and then Borges, Cesare and Michelotto. And the Tudor, despite uh, Charles Brandon and Henry, really is sadly lacking in bromance. It's true. It's true. <laughs> but there, Venus is, you know, moaning about how he can't make his wife happy. <laughs> and Pulo's like, well, first, the best way to a woman's. To make a woman happy is to bring her the warm beating heart of an enemy. They say they don't like it, but they do. <laughs> and Verenus is like, it's not... See, that's where Verenus went wrong. He brought her a penis instead of the heart. Exactly. Except, as Adia has said, a large penis is always welcome. <laughs> of course, your best method for pleasing a woman is the warm beating heart of an enemy. I mean, women will say they don't like it, but they do. Makes them wet as October. Yeah, but not decomposing. <laughs> That's the actual quotes from the show, people. Watch yeah. it. You won't regret it. And then Polo's like, okay, no, what you gotta do is, you know, just above her cunny. God. <laughs> God yeah, just above her cunny, there's this little button, and you attend to the button, and she'll open up like a flower. Veritas is like, how do you know this about her? And Polo's like, I don't. We just have. Everybody has them. Yes. <laughs> oh, poor Marinus with his sexual ineptitude. Yeah, it's adorable. So, actual sex lessons from the show. That's right. Attend if, to the button. If you know, if you want to know how to seduce a woman, you just watch that episode. You're good. <laughs> Attend to the button and bring her a warm, beating heart. Oh, Although, ep- personally, for me, I'd like to be able to harvest the heart myself. But you know, I'm not every woman. To add to the list of things that I am not. (laughs) (laughs) And then... Now, we could move on to talk about... Like, there's... uh, These historical... um, Grittified... (laughs) Because they're... (laughs) There's this this kind of brand of historical adaptations is still happening, and there's a couple of ways we could go. Like there is one happening right now called Vikings. Um, but I'd also thought before we wrap up, we really should mention the ones on the other side of the ocean. Now, sadly, by the other side of the ocean, she means the U.S. The U.S. because so far we've we've been in Europe. America has history. 
America. Well, here's the funny one. The ones we've we've uh, came up with when talking about for this episode are all um, what 19th century. Yeah, I think they all are. So Deadwood, Carnivale, and Copper. Why aren't any of them about Native Americans? Native like Americans. The, the Mayans didn't have sex. The Aztecs. Anybody? Well, Mel Gibson did that film with uh-uh, the Mayans. Uh-uh, uh-uh. Oh. That didn't happen. <laughs> did it not? Uh-uh. Did I make that up? Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, apparently, they didn't have sex. They didn't have sex. Um, I think that in order to do a show about Native Americans correctly, it should be made by Native Americans. Well, I don't know. Nobody involved and... in Rome was Italian. <laughs> True. That was it was a in Italy. Yeah. I mean, let's face it. None of this is being made by the people, except I guess Tudors. <laughs> well, Tudors was filmed in Ireland, so even then you've got even then awkward. Jonathan yeah. Well, I mean, the Tudors were. Yeah, I guess they should have gotten some Welsh people, huh? Yeah. Um. So I mean, it's a historical minefield tackling Native American stories, given mm-hmm. what history has done to Native Americans. Yeah, we we were talking about, you know, why were we including this, but maybe not um, Downton Abbey. And what's the difference between this and Quentin Tarantino's revenge porn? And there really is a difference between the show set and such a time period where no one living today is personally affected Mm -hmm. by whatever they do. So even with, for example, Copper, which is uh, BBC America's first uh, original programming um, it's had one season so far, and it's about it's uh, the time period is around uh, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, it's not about Lincoln himself, so it's not like Roman that it's said about the historical figure. Instead, this is about some New York characters. The main character being a cop, which is why it's called Copper. So it's it's far enough removed where yeah, no one alive today has even probably grandparents who would remember that, right? Mm-hmm. But yet. You know, still way removed in time from the Middle Ages we were talking about before. So it's so it's interesting. Like, but if they would try to do a sh- this kind of show set in the mid twentieth century, you already get into actual like viewers' grandparents who were alive during World War Two and right. things. Like that, I know. mean, we do have Mad Men. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know how. It's not really gritty. It's hmm. sort of. We also mentioned Boardwalk Empire is another one of these like, right. American history. Yeah, Boardwalk Empire isn't really gritty. It's just sepia toned. Mm-hmm. Um, I, <laughs> I, I, I enjoy good. Boardwalk Empire, um, or at least I enjoyed the the first season. Um, I haven't cared enough to put the second season in my Netflix queue yet, which seems kind of like the height of apathy. Yeah. I've seen a lot of Boardwalk Empire because it's the TV show that my dad has used to fill the gaping hole in his heart left by Lost. Aww. So he's never gotten over that show ending and he's never found a show to to really compensate. But Boardwalk Empire has sort of worked for him. I don't think it's anywhere near as good as it could be. Mm-hmm. I feel like uh, it's a show that's been resting that. on its laurels a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, it has some excellent moments in it, particularly just with some of the amazing characters that they have. Mm-hmm. Steve Buscemi and Michael Stilbarg and Kelly McDonald particularly are my favorites. Yeah, And I believe, Kaylee, you mentioned that you really thought uh, highly of Carnivale. 
Okay, Carnival is my favourite TV show of all time. <laughs> it was made for on HBO. It was around the time that they were sort of establishing themselves as the greatest network yeah. ever for TV. Two thousand three to two thousand five. It was around the time Rome came as well, uh, and it got cancelled after two seasons, which I'll never forgive them for. Um, basically, it's set in the Depression era America, and it's I struggle to call it historical drama because while a lot of it is pretty accurate in terms of Depression era depictions, it's far more about um sort of a mystical element it's mm-hmm. about um the forces of evil fighting the forces of good and it has this incredibly um, complex occasionally convoluted and ridiculous um mythos behind it which is very slow burning over its two seasons and that's re- the reason that i love it is because it's you have to watch this show about three times all the way through to get it all and i love watching it every single time because i always discover something new here's something if you haven't seen Carnival, please watch it i'll give you a sort of quick rundown what it's about. i say quick it doesn't even encompass you know the mass, vast majority of what happens um so it's depression era in, in south um oklahoma it starts in and there's a young ben hawkins whose mother dies and he's picked up by a travelling circus, which is run by a mysterious shadowy figure called the management. And he discovers that he has some powers. He can raise people from the dead, but at a cost. And he is destined to do battle with the forces of evil, who in this case is a well-meaning at first preacher called a Brother Justin, who's played by Clancy Brown who then realises that he is not on the good side and decides, fuck it, I'm going to go with this. <laughs> um, that's just a very, very brief rundown, but it's actually got this incredible ensemble cast of all of the people who are in the carnival. Um, for example, there's the bearded lady, there's the blind man with prophecy powers, there's um, the um, little person who runs the carnival, um, who's played by... I can't remember his name, but if you've ever seen Twin Peaks, he's the man that appears in all of the dream scenes in Twin Peaks. <laughs> um, and he's just so perfect in that role. There's a Cooch family, which is a basically a naked dancing prostitution uh, family run by the mother, the father, and then their two daughters. And the weird dynamic they have where basically, you know, the family that fucks together stays together. <laughs> Their favorites actually in the show, the women who... Like the Borgias. Huh. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. It's, it's a you know, historical... Uh, mantra to live by. I would say she's my favorite character. The, uh, her name's Rita Sue. She runs the, the sort of the cooch show for them all, and she has an affair with that guy from White Collar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those things where you watch it and it's full of all these actors, and you go, "I know who they are." Oh my god, they're amazing! <laughs> so if you have the chance to pick up on DVDs, I would invest in the DVDs. It's only two seasons, twenty-four episodes. Very, very slow burning. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's. The first season doesn't really move at all. It's that slow, but the atm- the, the atmosphere of it is beautiful. Um, this, this production design is gorgeous. The entire tone of the piece is just incredibly unsettling. And it's got music by Jeff Beale, who did the music for Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and has the best opening credits ever. And please just watch it so I can have someone to talk about it with. <laughs> Here's what surprised me. Ronald Moore is one of the executive producers, and I know him for all his sci-fi work: Battlestar mm-hmm. Galactica reboot, uh, Deep Space, Star Trek: Deep Space Nine, uh, etc. So uh, it was surprising to see his name attached to the credits of something that's not sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And I've right. just I just found it today, and I've very excitedly tweeted about it. Daniel Knauf, who is the um, the showrunner for Carnival, has just been he's just signed on to be the showrunner for NBC's version of the Dracula TV show. 
Mm. Oh, oh. So I've gone from not caring about that show at all to like caring a lot. <laughs> I know NBC have started really pandering to all of my needs lately. It's really concerning me. <laughs> yeah, I have not watched the second episode of Hannibal yet because the only time I had to watch TV since it aired has been while I was eating. <laughs> and that that just seemed to be a bad idea. <laughs> So I'd like to just a very very short side note. Watch Hannibal; it's really really good. It is good. It is good. Well, you're watching it, but watch it. Right. I'd like to talk about Vikings for a second. Now, Kaylee, I I don't know if it's airing in probably airing Britain, but you haven't seen it, right? It's not airing in Britain at all. It's not okay. I've seen a couple of episodes, and I think Raiden's almost all the way caught up with it. Yeah. Now this is History Channel, so it's so it's less sexy. <laughs> so the, <laughs> there's still sex, but it's not as you know in your face. There aren't nipples, for example. Right. The sex happens, but then the camera kind of has to pan away. Um, which you know, as we mentioned, sometimes HBO sex does get gratuitous. So it's not always. Sometimes it's enough to know that the character chose the characters chose to like. The you want to show the loving relationship between the husband and wife. Do we really have to watch them have sex? You know, you want to show somebody's an asshole by showing them raping a slave. Again, how graphic does it have to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I've seen a couple of episodes. What? What is with the accents? I went on afterwards to try to see where all the actors uh, are from. I figured, did they hire Scandinavian actors? Some of them are Scandinavian. But um, the main character is from Australia, and his wife is Canadian. Right. And they, they have a vaguely Germanic-sounding accent. Here's what always... Isn't it always hilarious when they make the character speak with an accent, even though there's translation convention happening, so we know they're not actually speaking English? It's like, are they speaking their native language with an accent? Is that what you're saying? Stop embarrassing yourself, TV shows. Right. <laughs> Just pick something. Um, what I think is really interesting is when they when they want to make it clear that two characters are speaking different languages they will like have the Vikings speaking in what I'm assuming is Old Norse and like the mm. the English priest speaking in like I think really Old English old, old and middle I think it's old because sometimes they subtitle them but still a few of the words are and grammars yeah. are recognizable I mean if it's if they're being accurate, it should be Old English because Middle English is still mm-hmm. kind of hits around the 10, 1100. Yeah, this, this, the first episode is set in 900 and something. In AD, okay, does it bother anybody else when they put AD after the number? No, just me? Okay, no. I'll shut up now. Um, here, when we uh, when Raiden mentioned a few actors of Scandinavian, here's something that should make people excited. One of the characters is played by Gustav Skarsgård, son of Stellan Skarsgård, <sighs> and brother of Alexander Skarsgård. <laughs> so uh, the Skarsgårds are in this. We're not yes. having Vikings without the Skarsgårds. <laughs> We're good. Yeah. I think I mentioned this somewhere where I was live blogging an episode or something. I think it might have been on the Mark Does Stuff community somewhere. Um, that the like the the tone of the whatever Scandinavian language they were going for didn't quite sound right to me 
because at least modern Swedish is very it's very sing songy, mm-hmm. and it's kind of hard it's kind of hard to take it seriously because it really does sound like the Swedish Chef. Because um, <laughs> I had someone in Sweden ask me like, "Do do we really sound like the Swedish Chef to you?" And I was like. Yeah, it was kind of hard to take the Swedish version of the girl with the dragon tattoo seriously because it would be be to be to be to be to he to sada, and I'm like, I don't, I, I can't with you right now because you sound ridiculous. Oh. Um, and this is, I mean, it, they they think that that the American accent is very flat sounding, which I think is probably true. Mm-hmm. Um, and this still sounded flat even when they were being super serious but of course they weren't speak like they were just doing it phonetically because presumably the actors don't know how to how to speak presumably although icelandic is still pretty much the same language as old norse yeah i guess it could have gotten an actor from mine here's um they don't actually say exactly where the they live they just say scandinavia yeah i'm thinking Based on the fjords of um, mm-hmm. of the the homestead that God, what the fuck is his name? Um, um, Ragnar, the main character. But yeah, Ragnar. Ragnar's homes homestead is in a fjords area, so that's Norway. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could be Finland, but seriously, no. <laughs> and then you know it's it's just funny when they bought when they tell the actors okay we're gonna speak English but we're gonna put on an accent so that people know you're not actually speaking English so we're gonna pretend it's all old but then in dialogue they refer to England as England even though it wouldn't have been England at the time would it? Kaylee, Anglia, um, something. I mean I don't know what the Vikings would have called it but I'm pretty sure it wouldn't have been. I don't think it would have been called England whatever it was not at that time period. Yeah. And yeah. It, it wasn't even united England like as England at the time because when the when the action shifts to the English shores they actually say it's the kingdom of Northumbria. Yeah. Northumbria. So I don't think even like the island wouldn't maybe it wouldn't been the British island but like Yeah. England and this whole country- thing about we didn't know England was there is crap. Yes, we know what it's did. called but we didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Like no, they they knew it was there. And yes, so. that's strange because the the conflict of the first couple of episodes is around how the earl won't let them sail west to where they think they'll be richer plunder, but they don't actually know that the British Isles are there. And I'm sitting there thinking, I thought the Vikings have already sailed to like Newfoundland at this point. Um, no, no, it's a little, it's still a bit too early for that. The the Newfoundland expedition doesn't happen until ten or eleven hundred. When they start, talked about sail, sailing west, too, and they t- said um, the open ocean, um, I kind of thought they were talking about the new sailing to the new world. So I was sitting there waiting for this to turn into the prequel to that Carl Urban movie, Path. <laughs> I think it was called or whatever it was. About the yes, Pathfinder 2007. <laughs> yeah. Haven't seen it, people. It's cheesy but fun, and it's about a Viking orphan raised by Native Americans. <laughs> and they said that during yeah during the Dark Ages. So it's about that time. <laughs> but no, they didn't go there. The West just spent England, the British Isles. Yeah. So I have, like I said, I've only seen a couple of episodes. What? How does it? Is it still good? Five episodes in, Raiden? Yeah, um, I'm totally. I was, you know, happy to 
pay my two bucks per episode to Amazon for it. Mm-hmm. So there we go. That's our current. So that and the Borgias are our current crop of European-centered. Copper is our current crop of America-centered. And as we were talking about this, we all kind of metaphorically looked at each other, being unable to do so physically, and said... Someday, someday, people, we're going to do an episode where we're all in the same room. Yeah. And it's going to be epic. I'll <laughs> settle for being on the same continent, to be honest. Yeah, right. <laughs> happen. And then we said, so, you know... You notice something? I notice something. It's all very white, isn't it? It's super white. Where's sex in ancient China? For example, I'm sure the ancient Chinese had sex. Presumably. (laughs) (laughs) What, is there a dearth of Asian actors in Hollywood all of a sudden? HBO can't find? I'm sure there isn't. But yeah, certainly it's... um, They'll go, they don't stay with, obviously, American or English history, but when they venture out to other histories, they will hire, like, the actors that are still, and they go, yeah, Cleopatra can, you know, who's a Greek-Egyptian, can totally be played by this English girl over here. Yeah, question for you listeners. Do homework, figure it out. Right. Is it just not? I mean, we... I, I know that there are historical dramas, presumably with varying levels of grit and sex, mm-hmm. that have been made in China and in Korea and in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, I've seen Bayan the Assassin, which starred a very young Ken Watanabe. Um, he's adorable. He's <laughs> kind of awesome. Um, I want to say that was the mid to late 90s about an acupuncturist slash assassin. That's not a spoiler. It's in the title. Um, in Shogunate Japan. Mm-hmm. He's an ethical assassin, which you know because he's an acupuncturist. There is implied sex. There's not, you know, actual Atia levels of sex. I mean, really, Atia levels of sex is you know, just shy of porn. <laughs> <laughs> On a scale of one to Atia. <laughs> yeah, there's um I was trying to think of any Russian ones and I couldn't really think um I couldn't think of any shows and I and throughout uh, during the recording of the episode one came up. It was um it was called like a historical and this wouldn't have had the sex, but even in terms of historical dramas, all I could think was, was uh, the secrets of St. Petersburg. Um, which was, which was uh, based on a, on a novel, and it was uh, like a serial, like a historical serial. But that's about it. Like I can't think of a lot in terms of historical TV serials, even in Russia. Even though there's just a lot of rich history to mine. Like, doesn't anybody want Saint Olga to go ahead and slaughter so many Vikings in revenge for her husband? No, nobody. Okay. <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, certainly, I believe every uh, every country will have these kind of historicals about their own. But even though we were talking about um, American and British productions going into other history, it is very white oriented. So there we go. <laughs> Come on, sex in ancient China, people, make it happen, <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, loyal listeners. 
because we know there are some of you. I see that you're downloading. Um, if you can find any Chinese historical dramas, TV historical dramas, or just any other, let us know. Yeah, if you if you can think of anything else that that falls in, let us know, and hopefully maybe you've got a few uh, things added to your Netflix queue out of this. Yep. Yep. So the genre, do do we see the genre waning? I don't see the, like, Viking seems to be, you know, going strong. So it looks like there's still interest. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's um, not going anywhere anytime It's not going. Soon. And certainly, no. as we mentioned, it's being supported by a very uh, neighboring and related genre of the same kind of style of shows that are based on novels, whether sci-fi or just historical novels. So The Pillars of the Earth and Game of Thrones, um... The King Arthur mythos have ha- has had Camelot. I think it was called yeah on, on Stars was it? I watched. How did that go down? You know, I watched like most of it and I did stop, but that was strange but interesting. Mm-hmm. And had uh, Joseph Fiennes. Oh well. Talk about chewing the scenery. Very had Evergreen. Okay, it had Evergreen, but it also had James Purefoy, but only for a few episodes. And I was so happy because I thought Rome just ended. You know, I'd... naked James Purefoy is back on my TV, and then they took him away from me. Oh, how could they? There always should be naked James Purefoy on my TV, which is now the slot being filled by the following. <laughs> is he naked in the following? I don't know. I don't think so. I watched the first few episodes and now I'm saving it up on my PVR, but my my it looks like no, which is sad. Mm-hmm. What's the point in that? It was like when yeah. True Blood brought on Christopher Maloney and he wore clothes for the entire thing. Why would you do that? Christopher Maloney clothes, I don't understand. <laughs> I know, it's not like he's got anything to hide. We've all seen Oz. Yeah, exactly. yeah. <laughs> and if in, in today's world if we haven't seen anything Tumblr has supplied us with the GIF it's true oh it's yes true. <laughs> right click save right click save right. <laughs> for research purposes research purposes <laughs> well you guys were all talking about the Borgias I went on huge research purposes moment there uh, uh, I don't think the historical dramas are going anywhere not just because there's so much history that hasn't been told but just because using these really fascinating pieces of history to tell your own stories mm-hmm. is incredibly popular and you can kind of get away with a lot more if you tell your own like fictional dramatization mm-hmm. than if you try to follow history. I'll, I'll give it an example of two of my favourite movies of all time. One is Amadeus, mm-hmm. which is about Mozart and Salieri, and it's completely fictionalised, but it's using these characters to tell a really fascinating story. And the other one is called Quills, which mm-hmm. is set just after the French Revolution in the mental asylum where the Marquis de Sade is being kept. Yeah. Yeah. And that is my second favourite movie of all time. And it's the one movie my best friend will not watch with me because he's a prude. <laughs> <laughs> I will say this. There, there is something somewhat titillating about all of these shows being rooted in history. So it's not just fiction that these people had all that sex and, you know, brooded <laughs> and had political intrigue. There is something to say f- for the interest coming from the, the place of this was re- there's a grain of truth to it, right? I th- I think that adds a flavor to these shows, which uh, adds to their yeah. overall appeal. I think yeah. we like to sort of look back and have our early preconceptions about history busted for you know all the early sort of classes you would take in school where it was all really dull and dusty and everyone was 
dressed from head to toe and they didn't do anything fun and then you find out that, that of course that wasn't the case why would they let you on you know read all of that stuff mm. when you're 10 right if we had like a period i'd love for them to go back to is uh, this has been done in the movies but not in a tv show like this um alexander macedonian alexander the great mm-hmm. i'm sure they could mine a few seasons of a show out of his conquests i would just like something better than the oliver stone movie because that was just I don't awful. even know. Oh my god! Did anybody it's see the other movie that came out afterward? Like, because there were two movies that were supposed to be released about the same time, and then everybody saw the Oliver Stone and not the one after, right? Uh, nobody saw it. Nobody. Right. Was there another one? I didn't even know. Yeah, there I were two. They were I I specifically remember going how oh that's a pity. Uh, they're all going to see. Um, Colin Farrell. Colin Farrell, but there was another one coming out. Oh. I can't even remember what it was called off the top of my head. I'm sorry. I just remember they would, they were like within a year of each other. And I think the other one looked from the previous, like it would be the Superior movie. Um, uh, uh, Google, don't let me down. <laughs> uh, let's see. What was it called? Wikipedia has an animated one in 2006. I don't think that's it, though. No, there was definitely... Maybe it was just delayed indefinitely after... Um, yeah, it, it, it's not a big deal. It doesn't matter. Um, that Just know that we could have had something else, but apparently didn't. <sighs> Sad. I mean, the Alexander movie is... A- total mess it's a really fascinating one but it is just kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. there is a lot of colin farrell in very short robes but you it's know. true and snogging jared leto if you get the uncut version yeah and so, uh, like, rosario dawson's boobs oh and the, yeah, the weirdest you know. sex scene ever yeah <laughs> it's like watching two cats go at it <laughs> God, that was weird it, the whole movie was weird this is also the movie where Colin Farrell doesn't drop the Irish accent to play a Macedonian, so... Yeah, well... <laughs> and Angelina know, Jolie seems to be playing Vampiro. film, was it called? Um, I t- can't find no proof of this film ever existing. Yeah, but I, I remember it too, so... There is a note in Wikipedia that says Baz Luhrmann had been planning to make a very different film about Alexander starring Leonardo DiCaprio, but the release of Stone's film eventually... Was this somebody trolling Wikipedia? Awkward. <laughs> this can't be true. No, like, I I know it existed, and now I cannot find proof that it did, because apparently the Oliver Stone movie just, like, erased it from history. It's... There's an alternate timeline somewhere, and that's the film that got <laughs> yeah, <made. right>. <laughs> <sighs> So, yeah, that was our episode on sexy TV shows. Lots of sex. Lots of sex. Some history. Yeah. And... Come for the in sex, stay for the politics. All of the sex that are in these shows, they also tend to be very gorily violent because sex and violence is the bread and circuses. Of- oh, speaking of that, we haven't mentioned because I don't think any of us have seen it, but there's Spartacus Blood and Sand, isn't there? There is Spartacus Blood and Sand, and I have not seen it. I haven't seen it either, but it comes highly recommended by all of my male friends. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think that just says a lot about that show from, yeah. from my friends, anyway. All right. 
Okay. So, yeah, go forth. Learn history and Through research, sex. people. Research. research. <laughs> so, this has been Anglophy episode... Seven. Seven? Wow. Seven. Really? Thank you, Laura listeners, for listening to us ramble. A lot. <laughs> I hope it's seven because I think I said seven at the it's top. Seven. Really? It's seven. Really? Some yeah, listeners, we will over half a year of Anglophies, people. Oh, wow. Chugging along. Chugging along. This has been Anglophies episode uh, seven. Thank you for uh, listening. Bye. Bye. <laughs>